0: Hi guys, welcome back to the Introduction to ST3 course. Today I'm joined by Damien Bates and we're going to talk to you about potential pitfalls and giving advice.
1: Hi everyone, and my name's Damien Bates. I'm a consultant in the emergency department in Bolton and I'm currently the clinical lead in emergency medicine.
0: We might like as well start off, Damien, with what groups of people generally ask ST3s for advice?
1: I think mainly this is going to be more junior doctors or doctors less senior than you who are looking for direction and confirmation really but obviously there's going to be other groups there's going to be nurses perhaps staff administrative staff reception staff and maybe even outside agencies such as the police
0: okay so if we stick with the more junior doctors to start with what sorts of things do junior doctors ask about
1: mostly they're going to be clinical questions aren't they largely I think junior doctors, when they ask, want some kind of confirmation that they're doing the right thing. So there may be questions about clinical knowledge that they don't know, that you've got a little bit more knowledge, but I think they're the minority. I think most things is they've got a problem moving forward. So what should I do with this patient or should I do this or should I do that? So it's often about the process or the how rather than a straight what to do kind of question.
0: Yes. And sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to know exactly what it is they're asking when they ask for advice. We've both worked with people who have quite particular ways of how they like to be asked for advice. What would your tips be for the ST3 trying to coach those juniors so that they know what the question actually is?
1: So I guess as they get older and wiser, our ST3s will develop their own styles, but it's often useful to try other people's, isn't it? So one of my colleagues really trains the doctors well to come to him and say this is my question and then tell the history so that when he's listening for that he can tune himself into the details of what that might direct him to the particular aspect. So it might be I've got a chest pain and I want to know if they can go home and then give the history and your examination findings and then he seems to be able to tune himself into the particular details that will allow him to make those decisions about say yes or no to go home. My Way I like people to come and tell me the history and the examination, and tell me their plan, and then I think they've made a little model of what to do in that situation, and then they're testing that model, and I can say, yeah, that's a great plan, carry on, and hopefully reinforce some of the decision making they've done already, or say, well, perhaps not do it like that, and rejig that model a little bit. So there are different styles of giving advice. I
0: think the other thing with almost having a particular way that you like being asked for advice can help with the teaching or learning experience aspect of this as well. So some juniors will use the opportunity of asking you about a case really for a work-based based assessment and so it's a lot easier if you're trying to do an assessment on somebody if they preempt that with I would like to do a case-based discussion on this. It can be really irritating when they get to the end of a history and then say oh and by the way can I have a case-based discussion because you might have listened to other bits what we listen to in terms of can this patient come in or can this patient go home might not necessarily be to the same detail that we would want if we're going to do it as a case-based discussion and sign them off for it.
1: Yeah and I think the other thing around that is you might have had a bit more detailed conversation around it if you thought that was forming part of an assessment rather than a yeah you've told me history yeah that's fine. Exactly. So if it's framed beforehand you can make it into an assessment rather than just a clinical conversation.
0: Yes and also sometimes there might not really be the time to do an assessment element of it so if the department is completely bouncing you'll obviously make time to answer any clinical questions that are ongoing that are going to affect patients care but you don't really have the time for the more in-depth discussion about a particular pathology and so if somebody preempts with that you can always say no we're really really busy I'm sorry I don't have time to do this now and that doesn't mean that you don't have to do it you can always ask them to take the um, hospital number of the patient or the case note number, and say that you can return to it at another point if the department is less busy, if they find a particular interesting case, or they know they need to get it signed off. But it can help you actually manage the workload aspect of the department, too.
1: Yeah, and whilst you were saying that, it just struck me that these doctors need to understand they can say, I can't do that right now. Sometimes people come and ask you for advice, and you've got a million other things to do at the same time and what you have to do is say right I can't speak to you right now now can you speak to that person and direct them specifically to someone or I'm going to do this I will come back to you and help you at that point when you just can't keep enough things in your head to advise to put another one in there at the same time so I think that's a, a valuable skill as well
0: Yes, distractions can cause a real problem in emergency medicine. Absolutely. Especially as a junior registrar, I think you can feel quite pressured into dropping everything and helping people when they ask for it. Whereas actually you need to prioritise and balance that workload. And that's whether it's giving advice to a junior or whether it's the 19th ECG that you've had passed you know's to sign.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, very much.
0: OK, so what happens when you don't actually know the answer? To the question that the junior has asked you about. So I guess at that
1: point it becomes a learning experience for our junior registrar as well doesn't it? I would say take the junior who has asked you the question to someone else to ask the question together, don't just direct them to someone else because you don't know the answer. We shouldn't expect our ST3s to know all the answers because they're ST3s, so they should feel able to ask It's not they've suddenly gone up a year and now they don't get to ask any questions. They've still got lots to learn. And so they should go with that junior doctor to someone else and they should both get the advice at the same time.
0: Yes, and then the next time somebody asks them that question, there's a higher chance that they'll be able to answer it. Absolutely. There's still a lot of learning that goes on. One thing I think we should touch on there is the danger of procrastination (laughs) when you don't know the answer to a question. Yeah.
1: So I think we've all done that, haven't we? We don't know, and so you say, I'll just wait for this, or I'll just wait for that. And realistically, we end up waiting for some blood tests that probably aren't going to tell us the answer. So I think probably, when you've been in to see a patient, you've taken a history and examined them, you probably know what's likely to happen. They're likely to get into hospital, they're likely to go home. and um, So you can start your planning around there, And I think there are very few blood tests or investigations which tell you the answer to that question of whether this patient is unwell and needs treatment or whether they're well enough to go home. I think there are some blood tests and investigations which are valuable in terms of making a specific diagnosis. So if you need an amylase to decide that this is acute pancreatitis and so should be admitted to surgery rather than medicine, that's a helpful test. If you need an x-ray to say this is a pneumothorax, that's a helpful test and it will help you with your forward planning and your forward treatment, but the rest of them are confirming what you already know.
0: Yeah, so we shouldn't have to wait for test results to come back before we form a plan. You can even form a plan that has a, if this test result is A, the plan is do this, if it comes back as B, then the plan is to do that. So you can actually build plans based on either way for those test results coming back and that means your junior is more likely to understand why that test is relevant in the first place and it also means you've empowered them to then carry on that patient care once that test comes back rather than waiting for the test to come back and then they have to come and talk to you about it again
1: yeah absolutely
0: okay so after you've given advice to your junior who should write in the notes
1: Ideally, if you're giving the advice, you should write in the notes, particularly if it's something very important. So if it's someone who wants to self-discharge, who's at high risk, or if it's a particularly dangerous clinical question in the, this is a cod requiner or something which might have significant ongoing effects, if you're giving advice, you should be writing in the notes. You'd be amazed at when you have given advice, what gets written in the notes, so it might just say, it's discussed with Dr Walthall, but what they do after that might not be what you've told them to do, it just says that they've discussed it with you. Or they will rec- they will write down what you told them, but it bears no resemblance to actually what happened.
0: Yes, it, it doesn't always represent the advice you've given.
1: So I think we could probably all, or certainly I, could get better at writing in the notes after I've given advice. But that would be the ideal way to do it.
0: I think sometimes when it's really busy, you feel like you can't spend the time to document in everybody's notes. So I suppose a get around for that is if the junior documents in the notes, you can then ask to review the notes. So you can say, finish writing your notes and then bring them back to me, um, especially if the paper. This obviously makes it easier. And then you can countersign the notes. With electronic records, it's probably a little bit easier because even if the junior hasn't finished writing their documentation. So it's not as though you're interrupting the paper notes halfway through to write your bit of advice in. You can use it as a new entry on the computer system and write your plan in. I think the other people that I always make sure that I write in the notes of are the really, really sick people, because they're the ones where you you kind of almost want to prove that that junior wasn't left on their own to deal with that sick patient. And it's important that the specialties who you then refer to know that a senior has been involved in the decision-making process and they're probably the cases where it's really easy for something to be missed when documenting in the notes because things are so busy and chaos is happening at the same time so the are really really sick ones I tend to always make sure I document in the notes for as well yeah so what about juniors who disagree with your plan so a junior comes to ask you for advice They've asked you a specific question, you give them some advice, and they clearly don't agree with you. What do you do?
1: I think that's difficult. You're going to need to explore why they disagree, and sometimes it's because they've worked with particular teams or they've come to you from other areas, things like that. It's probably best not to have a stand up row in the middle of the shop floor. Definitely. So if you're going to have a disagreement, it's probably best to take that away from the patient. In the end, As a more senior doctor, you're going to take some responsibility for what happens at the end of that conversation. But as an ST3, you should remember that you are not taking all the responsibility and there are people that you can ask to put you on the right track or to mediate. So getting some advice from elsewhere and I guess exploring why the junior doctor disagrees is the first thing, isn't it? And coming to some agreement over what you should do going forwards. And if you still can't agree, then you can either put your foot down or you can um, get some help from elsewhere
0: yes and I think that sometimes depends on the situation that you're in at the time if it's during I was going to say normal working hours by which I actually mean any time from 8 a.m in the morning until midnight or 1 a.m when there's a consultant on the shop floor you can yeah
1: absolutely when there's someone else there
0: yeah you can go and ask them um, overnight you should be on with a more senior reg in all places except at the kids' hospital. And in the kids, you've always got the options to ask the general medical paediatric reg or surgical reg, so it doesn't just have to be asking for advice from within your team. What about going to see patients? Should you go and see every patient that you give advice on?
1: I think that very that depends on two things. One, the person giving the advice, and two, the person you're giving advice to. So I think as you get more experienced you can probably start to make your decisions with less contact but certainly start when you start off advising other people what to do with their patients you should probably go and see them and it's incredible how much, the, how much value that adds, even if it's just saying hello, shaking hands, just seeing them across the room. Um, but it really adds in a tremendous amount to your decision-making as, as to what's going to happen with that patient. That really helps the person giving the advice. But if you don't know the person you're giving advice to, particularly if they're locums or if they're very junior or if you've never met them before, then you've got no idea how reliable their history taking is, what their examination findings are like what their previous knowledge is so again I think that really helps to go and see the patient and to kind of tie the things together what the patient actually looks like and what that doctor has told you and then that's building the trust between the two of you and in the future you might be able to change that model a little bit but certainly when you first meet people you probably ought to be going to see patients so that you know that what they tell you is actually what's going on.
0: Yes sometimes it can be quite surprising how different the actual history from the patient is to the one that's presented to you. And it can be because people develop bias when they go and see a patient. So they then present that case to you in a way that is going to fit with their preconceived plan of what should happen to that patient. And by going to see them, you remove that element of bias. And then there's also the fact that nothing beats looking at a patient to determine whether they are sick or not. Absolutely. The end of the bedogram is a skill that you develop with time and experience. So, the more patients that you lay eyes on, the better you will get at it as well. And you will get to the stage where you can tell from a patient walking in from the waiting room to a cubicle whether they're going to be coming in or not because of how sick they look. And that's not something that you should expect to be able to do really, really early on. It's something that you will only get once you've seen hundreds of thousands of patients.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But it is something that comes to you with time, isn't it? And I think the difference in the presentations you just need to look at what it says on the triage and what it says when you actually go and see the patient and they're often completely unrelated or maybe that's just our triage but i think it's everywhere
0: no it it happens with us too definitely um it's the it's the same image of whichever doctor goes in first you then come and ask somebody for advice and regardless of your seniority as a doctor when you go and ask somebody for advice and that person goes in and sees the patient the patient will always tell them something different to what you got out of them the first time oh yes what about patients who are being admitted does that make any difference in terms of whether you go and see them or what advice you give
1: It probably shouldn't make a difference, should it? We should probably treat everybody the same. But it does give us a little bit of reassurance. I remember speaking to probably one of our medical directors some years ago when they wanted us to see all the patients that were being admitted to make sure they weren't admitting too many and realistically all those patients have got a safety net of seeing another team after we've admitted them so they should be the safest patients and perhaps we ought to be concentrating on the patients that are being sent home by our colleagues to make sure that they're appropriately being sent home and safely being sent home so I think if you had to pick the one that you were going to review because you could only review one I'd review the one that was going to go home because I'd know that the one that's being admitted is going to get reviewed by someone else.
0: Yes, so it might be dependent on how busy your department is. So over the last few months, obviously with COVID, we've had big changes in workload in the department. We've had episodes where there have been very few patients in the department compared to times where there have been very many. The times where there are very few, there's no reason why you can't go and see every patient, regardless of whether they're being discharged or whether they're coming in, because it gives you that opportunity to use every patient encounter as a learning opportunity for that junior, even if it's something quite straightforward. When the department is busy, it might be that those patients who are admitted, if it sounds like they're being admitted for a sensible reason, then you might not need to go and see those patients because of that safety net that they've got. But just because they're coming in isn't a reason to not to review those patients and make sure that their plan is optimised.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Are there any things that ST3s shouldn't be giving advice on?
1: So I don't think there's anything that they shouldn't give advice on. I think they should be, if someone approaches you for advice, you shouldn't say, I can't do that. There may be things that you don't know that you need to go and ask about, or there might be local processes that you need to ask about, but that shouldn't make you say, no, I can't do this. There are, however, some things which need to be seen by other people. So the college sign-off things for uh, for ST4 and above, aren't they?
0: Yes, because whilst you're in ST3, you're not supposed to be giving the final advice on these patients. But as soon as you hit ST4 overnight, you will be expected to give that level of advice. So this is your opportunity to learn about those specific conditions and how to do it. So just to remind ourselves of what those consultant sign-offs are, they cover atraumatic chest pain and the patient over 30, febrile children under one, reattenders, so patients who come back to the emergency department within 72 hours and it's not that they're coming back to a clinic that you've asked them to come back to, and patients over 70 with abdominal pain. And these are determined to be high-risk groups and that's why we don't want you guys as ST3s giving the final advice on whether these patients can go home. So the only place where that might cause you some difficulty will be when you're on in the children's hospital because you will, as the ST3, sometimes be the most senior person on overnight. It's a bit of a tricky one to get through. You can't just admit all children under the age of one but your consultants also aren't going to expect you to phone them about every single one of these children. So you have a couple of options. One is just your balance of risk. So if this child looks really well and you feel very comfortable sending them home, then you can send them home. If you're a little bit unsure about it, that's why CDU exists. So put them on CDU for a period of observation. And then if you're still not sure about what to do with the child, don't forget you can ask other specialties for advice. So you can always phone the paediatric medical reg or paediatric surgical reg just to run it by them and see what they think too. So there are other places for advice that you need. Obviously, the really sick ones are easy because you're going to be bringing those in. Just one other thing, I think, on those groups of consultant sign-off patients that I wanted us to touch on are the re-attenders. So re-attenders can cause us problems because we often get quite cynical in emergency medicine and we can have preconceptions about people who visit the emergency department frequently. I think it's important that we don't allow that preconception to alter our assessment of that patient on an individual attendance basis which can be quite hard really can't it
1: yeah absolutely there's probably two groups of re-attenders aren't there there's people who come back with their abdominal pain and you saw them yesterday and they come back today and then they come back tomorrow those patients have got something going on we just haven't found it yet but I think the group you're alluding to is our more regular attenders, isn't it? And it's really hard to be biased against them when you see them two or three, four or five times a week to then take them seriously. But we should remember that sometimes they've got genuine problems. And certainly we've had some successes with trying to turn them around and, and not and helping them to manage their problems in another way. But when they present like that, it's really difficult not to assume it's nothing, they'll go home on, it's nothing, we're not going to do anything, or, you know, they'll just self-discharge. And we will, these patients will turn up poorly one day, or with a very significant overdose, or in a way that is harmful for them. You've got to take them seriously every time, because otherwise you're just going to be the one who's left at that top, the point where they do do something seriously, or there is something seriously wrong with them, you'll just be the last one to see them, won't
0: you? Yes, and I think when we're giving advice to juniors who've seen these patients, we need to be really careful to not influence them. What we don't want to do is take our cynicism about people who come back frequently and pass that on to the juniors. The juniors have probably got one of the best chances of picking up something new because they're going to go in without that preconception or without those thoughts that they've seen this patient multiple multiple times before for the past however many years and so they're actually looking at them with a fresh pair of eyes and what we need to do when they ask for advice is not influence them by saying oh it's such and such a body who's come back again they're always in and I think we need to be really careful of that and That kind of brings in the fact that when you're giving advice, you're not just giving advice, you're also role modelling behaviours to the juniors.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It can be very difficult. Role modelling, I think, is really important. So you've got to look like you're taking these patients seriously and not be dismissive when you're discussing or giving advice about them because they'll learn very quickly which patients they don't need to pay attention to or which patients are a problem or a nuisance depending on how you perceive them. So and our doctors do become very cynical very quickly. And you can see when they change very fast, don't they? So when they've been with us and they move on to their next specialty tomorrow, they've already changed. Their mindset has changed. So we can mold them in our mindset just as quickly to be dismissive or cynical. And we don't want to do that. We need to keep them fresh and enthusiastic, don't we?
0: We do. Okay, so I think we've probably covered most things about when juniors ask you for advice. We mentioned right at the beginning that junior doctors aren't the only group of people who will ask ST3s for advice and we mentioned a couple of different groups. So if we just briefly look at these, if we start with non-clinical staff like receptionists, secretaries, those groups of people, what sorts of advice do they ask for?
1: So some of it might just be administrative stuff that you can help out with but some of it might be more complicated so it might be release of information to the police it might be release of information to other bodies or to relatives or patients and things like that and some of that can be quite complicated and I would say unless you are certain that you're doing the right thing I would take advice from someone more senior and more experienced as to what you can do and what you can't do with information. So I think that's probably the safest thing.
0: Yes. And then the other bit to note on that is a lot of these groups have no clinical training or background whatsoever. So we assume that they have a reasonable knowledge of clinical medicine just because they're surrounded by us and by medicine every day. But if they come and ask you a question that you think is really simple and they should be able to sort out, you just need to take a step back and think that... Actually, it might be easy for you because of your years of medical training and knowledge. That doesn't mean it's easy for everybody. And some of those simple questions for you to sort out would be very difficult things for them to sort out. So if you can help them out with those, often it's easier to just take that task off them and do it yourself. So if it's a a patient who's phoning up because they want a little bit of clarity on their follow up or various things, then you should phone the patient back yourself rather than giving a message to the receptionists or secretaries and asking them to phone back. It just makes everybody's life an awful lot easier.
1: Absolutely, yeah, very much.
0: Okay, what about nurses then? So nurses also ask SD3s for advice.
1: Nurses ask doctors for advice all the time, just because they're doctors. And even when they're new in the department, the nurses will ask them questions, even though they've worked there longer. A lot of the time, our ST3s will be able to answer the questions that they're asked by nurses or to give advice to the nurses that work in our departments. We should remember that they've often worked there a lot longer than us and that they can give us advice as well. And they can be a really valuable resource to any of the doctors working in an emergency department, and particularly around some of the process things. But they've often got a clinical impression and an idea and if you're doing something slightly wrong or it's not what the nurse has expected, then you're probably best to go back and think about what you're doing.
0: Yes, so they might sometimes ask you advice and they're not actually asking you for advice. What they're doing is signposting the fact that maybe you need to think again about what your plan is. But then sometimes they'll ask you for advice because they need your clinical input But actually you don't have the knowledge on the process and so between you, you can come up with a good plan. So it kind of goes back to the fact that you don't need to have all of the answers all of the time, but work with the rest of your team to come up with the best solution. I think that's a very good way of putting it, yeah. Okay, so the final group that we're going to talk about that might ask you for advice are members of other specialties
1: okay so probably two approaches isn't the first one is you don't work for me you're not my junior doctor i'm not giving you advice go and find your registrar yeah probably not working for anybody that one is it there are some very simple questions that we can answer so if there's an f2 one for orthopedics and you know the answer for which particular type of splint or cast or what kind of follow-up this patient needs then help them out yeah, because they're just as stressed as anyone else's, isn't it? So there's no particular reason why we shouldn't.
0: Yeah, they might be asking you because they find their senior not particularly approachable and they find you very approachable. So actually, it's just part of being nice to people.
1: Absolutely. It's being helpful, isn't it? And nice and helpful would be a, much, a lot better word. It?
0: But then there's that other group. So... You might have a patient who has been admitted to the ward, and then something has happened on the ward, and you might get a medical or a surgical doctor or a specialty doctor who phones you up and says, This has happened, this is. Out with my level of competency, I do not know what to do now.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair enough as well. And we can often offer (laughs) advice in those circumstances and perhaps some practical help as well. So it might be, well, you need to x-ray these parts or these are the nice head injury guidelines. Did you know about them? So there might be some just simple advice that we can offer to patients to doctors looking after patients on the wards but there might be some more practical things like wound management or suturing or some of those things that perhaps the ward are not set up to do and if you imagine how difficult it is to close a wound if you've ever done that you know suturing in the middle of the night on a ward in a bed is impossible so there might be just some practical things we can help out with and again if we all helped that would be better.
0: Yes, it would. So sometimes I've sent plaster techs up to the ward because the plaster techs obviously know how to put plasters on better than nursing staff who've never done emergency care. Other times we've brought patients down to the department from the wards when they need care doing that we can do that other people can't do. Um, For example, maybe putting a chest drain in or doing some complex suturing or something like that. And although that's not quite how we think hospitals work, they come to the emergency department and from the emergency department go to the wards and then they don't come back to us. Sometimes it's just the best thing to do for the patient. So you need to not feel that the system is so rigid that you can't do what you need to do, but just look at what options are actually available to you. So Damien, I think we've covered everything that we wanted to talk about today. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you just... As we finish off, what are your top five tips for the ST3s then when giving advice?
1: The top five things to do would be go and see the patient, listen to the history, perhaps get someone to frame the question and then listen to the history, but do listen properly. Don't just try and carry on with your work whilst you someone's presenting the history. So stop, listen before you can give advice. Make sure that the advice you're giving is within your clinical competence. Don't forget that you can ask people as well um, maximize the advice giving as an educational opportunity
0: thanks damien i think those sound like brilliant tips so that's covered everything for this podcast thank you very much for joining me today thank you it's been a pleasure and stay safe everybody and see you soon
1: bye